0: Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words.
1: This is the Friday version of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers.
0: That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time.
1: And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work.
0: And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence.
0: We're also grateful to those of you who offer member support, for which I'm pleased to offer in return, member-only content curated with our authors and myself. You can find out more about this member-only content and how you can help authors give voice to their written words at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: When Landis is not getting under the cover at bookstores, at events, and on the road, he does it in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte.
0: But enough with the prologue. Let's get under the covers. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Hey, listeners. In this Under the Cover episode, we meet Bethany Johnson, co-author of You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. Bethany, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Landis.
0: Yeah, now no judgment here. Certainly none by me. I mean, this title sort of suggests there's some judgment going on here, right? <laughs> it
2: does, and in <laughs> fact, we've had people say, "I don't want to talk about your book on my blog because this <laughs> is very shaming."
0: Yeah, but it
2: yeah. is not. We do not tell anyone they're doing it wrong in this book. Spoiler. Right.
0: Okay, we'll get well. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. And this, uh, listeners, is not going to be an academic discussion, but uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Bethany, the academic, first. <laughs> You're a doctoral student, right, in the history of science, technology, and the environment, University of South Carolina, and an associate member to the graduate faculty and research affiliate faculty in the Department of Communication Studies. At the, I can even say it's a this. mouthful. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you're you're an academic, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, I work in academia.
0: But you can talk lay stuff. I too, can, you know? and I like okay. to. Um, okay. And you're studying how science, medical technology, and what is it, public? health discourses are framed and reproduced by Institutions and individuals with structural privilege from the 19th century to the present—what does that mean?
2: So, when you go to the doctor and you leave not how the how not sure how the conversation went, right? That's what I study. If okay. there's an epidemic and people are worried that they're going to get Ebola from touching a pole on the subway, which is not possible, right. I am curious about how they got to that conclusion uh. and how I can help officials and systems get information out that is more accurate but also easily. Understandable. So you're
0: kind of like a translator. To Hopefully. Some yeah, yeah. Yeah. So helping those two worlds understand each other to some mm-hmm. extent.
2: And to make sure that the academic world and, you know, traditional medical experts understand the value in and importance of their patients' perspectives, stories, and their own understandings of their bodies. Mm.
0: And you're not just an academic. You're a mother <laughs> too, right?
2: I am. I have two kids. Yeah. My eldest is Hazel. She's four and a half. Um Going on Philosopher's Sage, and <laughs> I have a 20 month old. His name is Otto, and he's uh, very excited recently about getting to pretend to drive my car when it's stationary. Okay,
0: so. good. And you've got a co author for this work that you put together, Margaret Quinlan, right? Yeah, yeah. She's
2: my dear friend and a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at UNC Charlotte. She also has two kids, Sweeney, who is five, and Teddy, who is 22 months, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, she does rhetorical studies. In health communication. And she is a dear, dear friend who has done everything from driven me to surgery to edited my cover letters. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really lucky to have her as a close friend, as well as in, in our field, what we call, we call each other our academic wife because we publish so much together.
0: Okay. So what came, what, what came first? The, uh, The kids, or the idea for a book that involves having kids?
2: There was some overlap. So, Maggie and I have been writing about infertility, Dr. Patient. Uh, communication there. We have friends all over the city. We've interviewed women all over Charlotte who've been in infertility treatment. We've made a documentary with graduate students that interviewed people at the Women's Center and at REACH. Um, So we've been out here thinking about these issues for a long time. We both had our first children, myself after a lot of infertility treatment, and Before we became pregnant with our second, we had the opportunity to write this book because we had gathered all this Mm -hmm. stuff. We had nowhere to put it in our articles, but we thought it all hung together in a way that kept us up at night. And so we kept talking about it, and we pitched Mm -hmm. it to Rutgers University Press, and they got back to us in two hours and said, let's do this.
0: So the title of the book is You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. You ready to get under the covers?
1: I am. If you like our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, please consider leaving a short written review about Charlotte Reader's podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you leave a review, it helps authors reach more listeners.
0: You can keep up with news about the show and member-only content for our member supporters by joining our email list. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join the list, we will give you a free ebook written by me. The first book in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy.
1: Charlotte Reader's Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City Network.com. So,
0: what are we uncovering here in this book?
1: Anyone that has
2: taken care of a child. Anyone that has parented a child, fostered a child, adopted a child, interacted with a child has probably heard you're doing it wrong from more than one source. What Maggie and I wanted to get to the bottom of was why this is something everyone experiences, how long this construct has been around, and what work it does. And the way that we got to it was we looked at some particular crises that can happen. um, Infertility issues, high-risk pregnancy, premature birth, miscarriage and baby loss, because those are the moments when people are most likely to lean on the expertise of either traditional practitioners or family members Mm -hmm. and friends. So we wanted to look at those moments to see how is this idea getting exchanged even inadvertently, Mm -hmm. to help us understand why everyone has this feeling and to maybe relieve us all in the process.
0: So what, uh, often ask uh, authors, you know, what possessed them to write a book or what obsessed them (laughs) to get involved in writing a book? Because it's a a big undertaking. Was Mm -hmm. it, for you, was it Was it one thing? Was it an obnoxious Facebook post about mothering? Was it a pretentious (laughs) male doctor who knew better than you how to be a mother? What what exactly was it?
2: Well, it came from so many areas. So, yeah, Maggie and I were fascinated by what we were seeing on Facebook and Instagram, particularly about the ways that people really, really supported each other. Um, There was a mother locally in Charlotte who lost her daughter this week, and it's been a very public Loss that her family has experienced really openly on a on local Facebook mother's group. And now there are hundreds of people coming to her daughter's memorial ceremony um, in a park this Saturday. Um, and so there are really, really beautiful things happening in a time when people probably feel really disconnected. But then we also saw a lot of moments of Mothers saying you're doing it wrong, Um, people hopping on to discussions and saying, I'm a local nurse and don't do it this way and that looks like this, and um, so we were seeing some real extremes. And the, I'm a historian, so the last real big information boom was the newspaper age at the turn of the 20th century, you know, ni- late 19th, early 20th century. And so I, I wanted to understand some of the similarities I was seeing in the news, the newspaper and women's magazines discussions at the time and what was on social media, but I also wanted to understand how this moment was really divergent mm-hmm. from that media age.
0: Well, social media has a way of getting in people's heads all the mm. time in terms of what's right and wrong and uh, how, you, how you should be doing things. Let's talk about the structure of the book just a second. You've got, a, you've got four sections of this book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you start out with a section on conception and infertility, and you, you touched on that mm-hmm. briefly at the beginning, and then you deal with pregnancy and birth. Are uh, you talking about What the whole process, how it should get done, who does it, where it happens, all this kind of thing?
2: The pregnancy chapter was um, fun, if not frustrating to write, because we actually collected what the wildest advice for pregnancy behavior that people had heard and we examined uh where some of that came from
0: what what kind of wild advice
2: (laughs) so so many people heard don't lift your hands over your head it'll wrap the umbilical cord around the baby's neck that's not that's not possible
0: i thought you had to stand on your head to get pregnant is that true
2: (laughs) that is something people (laughs) have also heard okay um Uh also don't eat spicy food you can't exercise don't run it's like a goldfish in a bag is what someone's doctor told them um and this got really complicated we talked to, to um a mother who self-identified as disabled, walking was really perilous for her. And so for her, riding a bike when she was pregnant from place to place was easier because she was less likely to fall. But the sort of party line is you shouldn't be riding a bicycle in case you fall.
0: A, a woman should not ride a bike while she's pregnant? Right, but, okay. especially
2: after six weeks. That's you, what a lot of people would yes I, I guess hear.
0: in the Victorian era, they couldn't straddle a horse either, right? Oh,
2: but, no. In no. the Victorian era, they also couldn't be seen in public pregnant. So. Okay, all right,
0: okay. <laughs> And then the third section of the book is on the postpartum period, or the fourth trimester, as you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, any interesting stories from that section of the book?
2: Well, something that might surprise your listeners, although might not surprise anybody that's given birth here, is that the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate anywhere in the industrialized world, and it's orders higher than other countries.
0: And why is that?
2: Um, because we don't offer postpartum care to people that have given birth. We offer it to their babies. And
0: what are we talking about when we talking about? We're talking about postpartum care for the mother. Is Mm -hmm. that?
2: So you've been through basically a car wreck. um, And you get two days in the hospital. And then we send you home. And we don't speak to you again until six weeks later.
0: That's not good advertising for having a baby. (laughs) You're you're about to get in a car wreck. you know.
2: (laughs) The best description I read was mm -hmm. you got in a car wreck. You're with someone that got in a car wreck. And they give you another car wreck victim to take home.
0: Yeah, and does the, does the uh, partner get blamed for the car wreck if, you know, when that happens? Yeah.
2: It depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. the partners don't get really any support either. Mm-hmm. There there aren't really any outlets for them. So, And most of the deaths take place in the first six weeks. So what we did was we found a very different postpartum model in Boston in 1905, and that's what we explore mm-hmm. in the postpartum. Can you give gesture.
0: us a, just a snippet of that, what's going yeah. on? So yeah, so
2: people got free care from interns that were doing their obstetric training, and these doctors came to their house for them to deliver their baby, and came every day or twice a day for weeks for free, and cared for the mother and baby as a unit, and had arguably better outcomes in some cases than we have today.
0: Mm-hmm. And the fourth section of the book, infant loss and early childhood, you mentioned that a little bit. We don't have a we don't have time on this podcast to talk about early childhood and everything that goes into that. <laughs> right. Right. That's that's probably a podcast unto itself. But so on this show, sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times, we deal. With fiction and fiction, uh, conflict is usually central to the story and in, 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 in a fictional story. Um, I sense uh, in this book there is a lot of conflict, even mm. though it's a non fiction book. Where do you see the most conflict for women who are trying to do the right thing in the face of medical expertise and these constant barraging opinions on Facebook and in the media?
2: Well, the conflict is who do you pick? Everybody is. Very confident, and you might be talking to a doctor, a doula, a massage therapist, a nutritionist, your mom, an aunt, a meditation expert, a child psychologist. All of these people might have an opinion about the best way to approach things, they may conflict, and no matter who you decide to follow, someone will tell you you're doing it wrong.
0: Yeah, we had a uh, <clears throat> great pediatrician, he was a friend of my father's, he's now deceased. His name was Mac McLean, and my wife used to just come home just so happy to having visited him. He was always available to us, but he Mm -hmm. he took the position that the mother's right. You know, Hmm. if that's your instinct and that's, you know, so shoot, you're going to know better a lot of times than science, you know, what needs to be done. Uh, But in your study, I think you found that there were a lot of strange things happening in history here, right, when it came to the medical (laughs) profession. So how did they used to treat infertility?
2: Well, um, they used to treat infertility by—neurologists uh, used to treat infertility. So they would treat you for hysteria and neurasthenia because mm. uh, the idea was that you were robbing your reproductive energy by being a hysterical person. Um, the other way they treated it in the late 19th century was trying to bar women from going to college because the idea was if you studied chemistry and Greek, you would make yourself sterile uh, <laughs> okay. because you wouldn't have the mental energy. Left over to get pregnant.
0: And then there were some leeches involved too, right? Yeah,
2: uh, there was a lot of uh, cervical removal and leeches and things that really raise your eyebrows when you read them in the medical record today. New mothers have long sought and received expertise from community members or lay experts, including family, friends, and acquaintances, who provided advice through the lens of their own experience. Sometimes these lay experts may have had training in technical medical expertise as family doctors, nurses, and eventually pediatricians, or had training in or knowledge of alternative medical practices. In the United States, medical history is punctuated by Both efforts by traditional experts to discount or curtail the activities of practitioners they felt unqualified to practice, like midwives and doulas, as well as waves of populist medical movements maintained and upheld by the American public, like uh, hydrotherapy and homeopathy. Female-identified individuals have long participated in protecting the health and wellness of their family and community members as both lay and traditional experts, even as these definitions have changed. For example, midwives have transformed from community leaders and technical healers to lay practitioners. By the mid 20th century, the practitioner-patient relationship, more specifically, the doctor-patient relationship, had crystallized into an ideal of the sacred, insulated medical relationship arranged in a top-down fashion, practitioner to patient, and legitimized by technical experts the shift from home to hospital care and the corporatization of medicine. For the last three decades, historians and health communication feminist and medical humanities scholars working at the intersections of these fields have insisted on the need for a model of practitioner-patient communication that empowers both patient and practitioner and creates a dialogic or discussion-based model of health care, pivoting on clear and open communication and the conclusion, that physician-dominated discussion is counterproductive. This research points to the need for caregivers to encourage open communication so as not to overlook important information. Caregivers can also work to ensure the patient does not feel belittled and therefore leave out vital information in fear of critique or censure from the caregiver. Scholars across these fields continue to wrestle with this delicate communicative balance between patient and practitioner.
0: So Bethany, I sensed uh, looking at this, uh, I picked out some more conflict. That's what I look for here. The conclusion that physician-dominated discussion is counterproductive. Does that sometimes feel that way when a woman goes into, you know, to meet with her doctor, they feel like they're being lectured and talked down to?
2: I think so, and I think it's frustrating for the practitioner as well because um, practitioners spend enough time with people that they often understand when they're not getting the whole story, and they might feel frustrated by not. Getting to that information or perceiving their patient as someone that's not listening to them and non and being non-compliant, but the gap there is that both of the people in the room are having these feelings. So how do you bridge that gap so that you can have a real conversation?
0: And you explore this in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And we we use these crises and these very wild histories about puppies and the NICU and all of that to talk about um, when it was different and how it could be again.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I read about the puppies. The, the, the puppies are. <laughs> (laughs) Breastfeeding, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, So a doctor comes into a tenement house and um, sees a baby sleeping peacefully on a bed and a box with sawdust in it and a brand new puppy sleeping in it. And then notices that his patient, who he delivered, he helped deliver her baby yesterday, is nursing a brand new puppy. And he's sort of horrified. And I'm reading this in his own notes.
0: So I'm a little horrified too.
2: (laughs) So the idea was that she had too much milk. And her baby couldn't eat it all. And so giving it to these puppies would be the best way to sort of fix that problem. But a neighbor heard that she was in labor and just went out and got puppies and brought them to her. And the doctor mm-hmm. says in his notes, you know, I, I told her, well, this this isn't really safe. I can actually help you with this. I'll give you some, you know, magnesium sulfate or whatever. So okay. that was actually a good exchange because she said, Oh, okay, great and he, he, I guess he took the dogs and brought them to another neighbor so she wouldn't feel like she needed to All keep right. nursing them.
0: Okay, uh, okay. so <laughs> we'll stay away from that. So uh, in the 1900s, there was a Better Babies contest, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was almost like uh, going to the fair for the 4-H. They're actually examining babies to find out which yep. is the fittest, checking their teeth. Their, their, their
2: teeth, their nails, their eyesight, uh, um, their personality. Not,
0: not politically correct in any sort you know. of Okay.
2: They were looking for you know who what the best stock was, and uh, they were also counseling patients um, how to er, you know eradicate quote unquote blindness through marriage and stuff. It was uh, it was eugenics.
0: And then there was the Coney Island incubation of babies you cover. It was a sideshow, you said, sort of mm-hmm. a freak show. People paid to see mm-hmm. babies that were being incubated, but this person saved a number of lives.
2: Martin Cooney, probably anywhere between 5,700 and 8,000. I know that's a big gap, but the numbers are hard to nail down. But, yeah, he he ran a side show on, on Coney Island, and people paid anywhere from 5 to 25 cents over the decades he was there um, to see these tiny 2- and 3-pound babies in their incubators, and he was wildly successful.
0: I mean, it's hard to believe that that happened. I'll, I'll let the listeners go pick up the book and read about that. We've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to do – couple of writer's life, uh, questions here. Mm-hmm. You co-wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like to co-write a book and what were the challenges?
2: It was, it's excellent to write with Dr. Quinlan because we know each other so well and we know each other's process so well. The, the, Writing happened so much faster because I could take a chapter, do the work I needed to on it, send it to her so she could add her pieces and then edit it, and I would turn to another chapter. So we were always working on multiple parts of the book at the same time. She also has a really good eye for citation detail, and I knew what um, I needed to do in terms of historical framing. Um, So we both brought different talents to the Mm -hmm. table. The difficulty was trying to do it around... Being pregnant and having young kids and other jobs and
0: that happens to all the writers. (laughs) Exactly, maybe on the show. So, what were you searching for, mostly, in writing this book? And did you find it?
2: Mm, I did. I had a lot of relief because now that I know that I'll always be told I'm doing it wrong, I don't have to take it on in the same way. What I was looking for was when this stuff started. My, my sort of pet project in this book was the infertility chapter, the history of just relax, which anyone that's been in infertility treatment knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, and I've just was flabbergasted to follow it back 150 years. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also released its sort of power by doing that.
0: What do you hope readers uh, will gain from this body of work?
2: I hope that they uh, that people understand that this book is not just for parents or mothers or people with children. We're talking about information dissemination, um, how media works, and how expertise works. So the type of questions we're asking can be applied to any area of life, and hopefully, the all the stories that we collected will keep people interested, if not horrified, along mm-hmm. the way.
0: Yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah, the horrified <laughs> as well. <laughs> But you did bring in some practical – you said it's not a how-to book, and yet through these stories that you tell, people can get a sense of uh, how – you know, what they can take away from it in their mm-hmm. own lives, right? So, so I know there are going to be images and there are going to be uh, links in the show notes here, but where can people find your book?
2: Um, surprisingly, it can be bought online at Target. We just heard, oh, well. um, also Amazon <laughs> okay. and Rutgers University Press. And okay. for your listeners, we can give you a thirty percent discount code. And if they buy it at the Rutgers University Press website, they can get it for under twenty one dollars. All
0: right, we'll, we'll put it in the <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. I'll get you to send that to me. <laughs> yeah, put it in the show notes. Yeah. Hey, Bethany, thanks so much for being on my uh, Under the Cover show today. And, Thank you for uh, having me. And uh, synthesizing this book with a gazillion footnotes into twenty minutes. Okay, <laughs> thanks. (laughs) Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written word.
1: Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author.
0: But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life of a local or regional author.
1: Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone.
0: If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter.
1: We'd love to have you as a member.
0: And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me.
1: Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media.
0: Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me, or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions.
1: You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
0: Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.